On today's podcast, we have Dr. Michael Olson. Dr. Olson is a cell biologist studying how cell shape affects cell behavior. Michael joined the Department of Chemistry Biology in 2018 and is a true lover of research and discovery. Michael shares his unique transatlantic journey of research and critical thinking in this podcast. So please lean in and enjoy this conversation with Dr. Michael Olson. Welcome, everybody. Welcome back to the pod. Today, I have another special guest, a faculty member in our department, uh, Dr. Michael Olson. Michael's rather new to the fact or to the Department of Chemistry and Biology, but Michael, welcome to the pod. Thank you, Brian. Tell us a little bit about yourself. So I joined Ryerson in April 2018. So I am new in that I've only been here for a bit over two years. Before that, I was in Glasgow, Scotland for 13 years at the Cancer Research UK Beetson Institute. And uh, my journey has been long and varied with multiple Atlantic crossings. And, you know, I'm happy to go into it more to give you an idea of the whole journey that I've taken. Actually, let's start with your hometown. Where were you born, Mike? Well, I was born actually in Madison, Wisconsin. So I was born in the US, but my parents emigrated to Edmonton when I was six. And I grew up in Edmonton, so. And so where did you go to school? Where was your first uni experience? Like 99% of people go to university in Edmonton. I went to the University of Alberta in Edmonton. Um, Basically everybody goes there. Um, It's very big, very multidisciplinary university. It's, It's well, well staffed with knowledgeable faculty, etc. So that's where I went. I started actually in biochemistry, and then partway through, I, I decided. Me too. I actually, I actually started in biochemistry at Waterloo. So that's kind of a funny, funny story. Anyway, go ahead. Sorry. Well, I think our interests probably diverged in that respect because then yeah. I found the chemistry less interesting and the bio more interesting, and so I actually went into genetics. Um, and finished finished my degree in genetics. And so after, uh, so actually during your undergrad, were you a good student? Uh, were you somebody who got straight A's or was a bit more of a journey for you? In school, in, you know, up to high school, I was a great student. Um, you know, things came very easy and uh, I did very well. When I started university, I hadn't really, I didn't really have the experience that I needed Uh, disciplined work habits. And so at first, the first couple of years of university, I actually was a bit of a shock and I didn't do so well. And that was also part of the reason I switched from biochemistry to genetics, that um, I wasn't liking the courses I was taking. So I wasn't really motivated to work very hard at them. And I switched to genetics and then, and then I really, I turned it around and I, you know, I was much more motivated by the courses I was taking and I worked harder and last couple of years of university yeah I did pretty well did you did you always like what led you to want to become go into biochemistry did you know what you wanted to be when you were a kid I didn't really know what I wanted to be you know I was a sort of kid who liked to take things apart and figure out how they worked and in school I liked chemistry physics biology pretty much equally and I had an idea when I was younger that I wanted to do physics but then actually it was a teacher in high school, a biology teacher in high school, that um, not 
actively, but just by making biology very interesting, uh, made me decide that biology was more the area I was interested in. But I still had this idea that I was liking the physical sciences. And I think that's part of the reason that I thought biochemistry was going to be a good merger between the physical sciences and biology. Yeah. And so when you, uh, you finished your undergraduate degree, you, you actually it was complete inverse, as you said earlier, because I, I went in for the exact opposite reasons and, and left for the, the same but opposite reasons. Um, right. And so when you when you when you decided to do grad school, when did you know that that's what you wanted to do? I think, you know, what I liked in university was actually doing the labs. And, and I kind of realized that I had a bit of a talent in the lab. You know, even, even though chemistry wasn't, didn't turn out to be my great love, I was actually really good in the chemistry labs, you know. So um, I found that, that part, the most interesting part, like I said, I had a certain talent for it. And um, the biology labs as well, I think, you know, I was able to design experiments relatively easily that made sense, you know, work very well. And I, I really enjoyed lab work and I decided this is what I would like to do. I didn't really know how one would go about making a career of it, but I did know that, you know, graduate school was pretty much obligatory if that's what I wanted to do. And so where did you end up going to graduate school? So I actually went, ended up, and again, there's a bit of a, a bit of a journey to it. I, I was in my fourth year thinking about graduate school, and I started applying all over the place. And I wrote a really bad statement of intent, you know, one that I don't even know what I wrote, but I know it was bad because I didn't get into graduate school anywhere. And um, so, that, I mean, that was disappointing. And I decided that maybe what I should do is, is work in a lab for a year. Uh, for one reason, get a bit of money um, to make graduate school a bit easier to do. And also, I like the idea of, going into lab and just doing full-time research without having to worry about classes. So I actually got a job at the University of Toronto in a lab as a research technician and did that for a year. And, and I did enjoy it, but I also realized that if I wanted to be my own boss and you know, direct the kind of research I wanted to do, that you had to go on in graduate school. So I applied to do graduate school and actually stayed in the same lab where I'd been working for graduate school. And I was in the Department of Pharmacology at University of Toronto. That's cool. I like how it wasn't linear. And, and being on the Graduate Admissions Committee, I do see a lot of bad statements of interest. So you're, you're not alone, I'm sure, in that regard even today. So what was your, in a Cole's notes kind of version, what would you do for your PhD? So the reason that the guy who hired me initially is that, um, and you know, this is going back a while, that I had decided that one of the areas of biology that really interested me was molecular biology, which was still kind of a nascent field. And so this guy had um, derived a number of cell lines that were mutated in different proteins involved in signal transduction. These were cell lines that basically make um, steroids. So the adrenal cortical cell lines that make the adrenal steroids. And these different mutants that you know, wouldn't be stimulated by the normal kind of stimulus to make steroids. And the idea was using molecular biology, we would figure out what the different mutations were to piece together the signal transduction pathways. So that was based on my um, knowledge of genetics and my interest in molecular biology. So that was basically the project. And it essentially, there were a number of, no, I'm trying to get 
into this without going into too much detail. There were a number of different uh, mutants that affected not only how the cells made steroids, but also affected their ability to grow or not. So the, the selection criteria was whether or not when they were stimulated, they would stop growing. And the ones that are mutants would keep growing in response to the stimulus. And so the project was to analyze those mutants and figure out the, the signaling pathways. Very cool. So you, you did something that I wish more students would do. And, and while you took a year off, you also had a big movement in terms of, you know, you went from Edmonton to Toronto. What sort of spurred that, that direction? Like, what, how did you, how'd you come to that sort of decision to get to Toronto in the first place? When I was a kid, my family, we would go on holidays, often back to the Midwest of the U.S., and we would go um, almost every year to Chicago. And also on family holidays, we would often go further west and go to Vancouver and Seattle. And I really enjoyed being in cities, in bigger cities than Edmonton. And so when I was looking for places to move to work and then to do graduate studies, Toronto was very attractive because the fact that it was a big city, it was very interesting, there's lots of things to do. And of course, the universities are, are very good as well. Yeah, it was a good choice. I'm, I'm glad I brought you this way. All right, so after your PhD was done, um, what, what was your transition next? So after I did my PhD, um, I wanted to go someplace again um, that would offer both um, a good opportunity for doing research, but again, something that would be an interesting place to go and live. And, you know, this is one of the great things about doing a PhD is that you then end up having a completely portable qualification that allows you to go anywhere. So it's different from being a doctor or a lawyer where your qualification then ties you down to where you trained essentially. You know, with a PhD, you can pick up and go someplace. And so my wife and I, we had met in graduate school. We were both doing PhDs. We decided that we wanted to go someplace interesting. And one of the places that we sort of targeted as possibility was going to London, UK. I also had this idea in my mind that France might, would be interesting, um, but there weren't as many opportunities for the both of us. And, then, and London was great because it has a number of very big universities. It's not that far from Oxford and Cambridge. So the density science in that part of England is very high. And, you know, the density everywhere in the UK is pretty high. In fact, I ended up going to Edinburgh for the exact same reasons. You know, you wanted something expose something new. I thought it would be a little bit easier to, in terms of languages. I was wrong. <laughs> when I went to Scotland for the first time, it was, yeah. it was, we, we were using hand gestures and you were in Glasgow. So how'd you get from London to Glasgow? What were the series of events that led you there? So I went, to, I went to London to postdoc. I did a, a shortish postdoc, short for biology, not necessarily short for chemistry, about two and a half years. And then I did another um, two and a half year postdoc. And then I actually got a grant to start a lab. And I had my own little lab there for a while, but then ended up going to Philadelphia. And I worked at the University of Pennsylvania for three years. And then one of the things that I realized that I really enjoyed about working the places I'd worked in the UK is they have um, research institutes which will be funded by either government agencies akin to the CHR or NSERC, or there are charities, medical charities that fund big research institutes. And I realized that institutes were a very good place to work and an opportunity opened up at the Cancer Institute in Glasgow 
and I applied for it and, and you know, interviewed, et cetera, and got the job. And so that's why I ended up moving to Glasgow. Cool. And so what brought you back to, to Canada? Or what was the motivating factor, I guess? I mean, there were a number of factors. One was, um, one was, was Brexit and thinking about what the impact would be on society in Britain and also on scientific funding. Another one was getting to the stage in my career where I figured I had one good move left before I had to start thinking about retirement. You know, if you leave it too late and you've only got five-ish years left in your career, you really don't have much opportunity to move at that point. So I didn't want to run the clock down too much. I wanted to be able to move when I would still be able to establish and set up, you know, productive research again. Um, and another was we were living in Glasgow, thinking about our future. Did we want to stay there forever? And we, my wife and I decided that wasn't necessarily what we wanted to do, that we would rather come back to Canada. All of our families in Canada, you know, we were there, just us and our son. And we decided that um, for those factors that we'd like to move back. It wasn't, it wasn't a thing that we had to do, you know, so I was looking for a good opportunity, but if a good opportunity came up, you know, I was definitely keen to investigate. And we're definitely glad to have you with us on our team now. So you, you, a curiosity question, when you were at these institutes, if they were funded in a different sort of model, did you have to write grants all the time? So where I was in Glasgow, um, the, you were sort of given funding straight from the Institute for a certain number of uh, students and postdocs. So I had funding that was given to me for two students, two postdocs, and one what they call scientific officers, so basically a research technician. And that would be just a rolling um, funding. So as people left, I could just fill, fill those positions up again. So that's, I mean, that's great because that gives you stability and allows you to do very long-term kind of projects. And then if you want to make, build your lab and have more than that, then you write external grants. Right. Because I, I know that you're, I've heard, <laughs> based on your recent success, that you're quite good at writing grants. And so tell us about a little bit about your research that you're now doing at Ryerson. So what we're really interested in is basically the signaling pathways that regulate cell shape and how these pathways regulate cell shape impact how they do things like move, how they adhere to each other. And, you know, the, we're interested in this from a very basic biological perspective, but this has significant implications for cancer. Because if you think about cancers, they start out as generally from cell types that like to adhere to each other to the point where they lose that adherence to each other and they start to move and they start to spread throughout the body. And it's that process of spreading called metastasis that is really the major effect of cancer that makes it as dangerous a disease as it is. You know, many tumors that grew in one place wouldn't really be such a problem, but as they've spread to different locations, they spread to your lungs or your liver or your brain, that's when they become a problem. And by learning more about how cells regulate their shape and how they regulate cell movement, the idea was we would identify potential new drug candidates, new drug targets rather. And then we've had programs over the years to try to make drugs to block those proteins to stop the spread of cancer cells. Very cool. And I think that would apply to viruses and the things that we're seeing right now as well too, wouldn't it? 
Well, I mean, yeah, you're right. Some of the processes that regulate cell shape also do things like regulate how um, receptors at the cell surface are internalized and viruses enter cells by adhering or sticking to receptors, which are then internalized. And then once they're in the cell, then they get out from that and they replicate within the cell. So it's true that, you know, by looking at sort of very basic fundamental biology that may be in our case focused on cancer, we end up making discoveries that may also have consequences on things like viral infection. Yeah, excellent. What do you, what do you like best about your job? I really love doing research. You know, I really love um, thinking of a question, thinking about how will we answer this question, um, getting people to work on answering those questions. That's, that's, the big picture sort of thing that I love. I also like helping to get people to answer those sorts of questions and develop their own skills and in answering, uh, figuring out ways to answer those questions, also thinking of new questions. So you get a feedback from not only them discovering things, but also learning those skills themselves and standing their own two feet and you know, developing and maturing as scientists. So those things are sort of connected and, and both of them are really what I enjoy the most. Excellent. And what do you like the least? Well, I mean, it's one of these things. As you go along in your career, you end up having more responsibilities for being on committees and doing administrative things. And I don't know if there's anybody who actually enjoys those things. It's just part of the, <laughs> you know, the, the cost of doing the job. But, you know, they're bearable, but they're not particularly enjoyable. I agree. They definitely distract from those answering those questions and thinking about those mm. big picture things. What inspires you the most about your job? Well, I think I kind of touched on that. You know, what's inspiring is doing research and having like a, just an idea and then answering the question that you want to answer and, and finding out something that's brand new that nobody knew before. I mean, that's very inspiring. And then very coupled cool. with that, coupled with that is having people come in, you know, as sort of new recruits and, they may be enthusiastic and they may have a certain drive, but helping them to harness their own skills and you know, start to answer their own questions and develop, that's the other thing that's quite inspiring. When you think about your teaching style, because um, I guess you've only been here for uh, just under two years and we now are in a little bit of a break, what, uh, what would you say is characteristic about the way you like to, to, to teach students in the classroom? Well, I mean, I have to be truthful that until I came to Barson, I did minimal teaching before. So it's been a new experience for me having to do large-ish lectures. And so I still slightly worry about how effective I am. I try to make the things interesting. I try to get people interested and engaged. And, you know, what I really like is when people ask questions um, that show that they've been paying attention and they've understood what I've been trying to teach, you know, and they may build on that and think of new creative questions. And, you know, it's always very satisfying when that happens and you realize that they've really understood it and found it interesting enough that they formulated their own new question. So I think I may have deviated from your question a bit. Um, no, no, I think that's, I think that's perfect. Cause that's one of the things I was just thinking as you were saying that, that that's what I really love too, because mm. one, when they ask a question, you now know that they understand it well enough to ask a question. And this is why I always encourage students to ask questions because I think sometimes they don't have a lot of security when they do that, but yet they, that, that, that act, that very act inspires me. 
And so I really want them to do it. And if they're just, you know, lips are sealed, then I, I don't really get a sense of, of their learning moments. So no, yeah. that, that answers my question. What, what transferable skill do you think is most important uh, for students these days? What do you, like in terms of not like technical skill necessarily, but something that, that generally could be applied to all areas, what would you like to see students develop the most? Well, I think, you know, one thing that's very important is um, critical thinking, you know, seeing what, um, what facts there are, what data there is, and evaluating it and, and really sort of with almost a degree of skepticism, critically evaluating whether what the data shows is what you think is going on or whether you have to reevaluate. So critical thinking is important in many different kinds of jobs, you know, so I think that's a very important transferable skill. skill. More, pra more practically, Sorry. I think, no, no, it's okay. More practically, I think writing skills and public speaking are also something that people can pick up in graduate school, which have a lot of transferable value. So what would you say you work on? And I, and I completely agree. I think now in a world that we live in that's so data-driven and we're inundated with data and facts mm. or pseudo-facts and, and critical thinking now more than ever needs to sort through the noise, right? Um, yep. what, do you, what do you think, what do you work on the most? Like when you're, when you're working with students, uh, because you, you know, while you haven't been teaching in the classroom all the time during your career, you have always had HQP or highly qualified personality training. What skills do you like to target the most in, in the lab environment or when they, when they leave the Olson lab, they have, you can say they've done this. Well, I think, you know, like I say, framing a question, figuring out how to answer the question, evaluating whether the data they're producing answers their question or not in a, in a critical way. And like I said, slightly skeptical way, you know, you don't want to have formulated the answer in advance and then try to make the, the results fit your answer that you've preconceived. You almost have to convince yourself of the answer. And even if you had an idea at the beginning, you have to be kind of critical. Has this data really answered the question or is there some other way that I could interpret this data that would be actually the opposite or different from the answer I anticipated? So I think again, that it's a transferable skill, you know, to, to really have that kind of critical mindset. Yeah. And actually it's a, it's a quite a bit of self-awareness too, knowing that you're not trying to mine the data for the story that you hope to tell, but rather mm -hmm. look at the data and see if it actually tells a story on its own, which again is the virtue of the scientific method of people actually were rigorous in following it. Very cool. Um, let's go to the rapid fire stuff. Some lighthearted questions. Um, and I mean, because you're one of the new kids on the block, Ryerson, there's lots of things here that I think uh, would be interesting, especially to me. So question one, what factoid do my colleagues know least about me? And of course, obviously something you're willing to share. <laughs> well, I kind of given the game away, but the factoid I think people are least aware of me is that I'm Canadian. Oh, yeah, because I guess you do have a, a, yeah, I don't hear a strong Glasgow accent, but I do hear a little bit of one, but okay. That, that's no, I don't, I, don't hear, I don't hear it at all, but a, a number of people have asked me things like, so when are you going to go back to Scotland next? And I say, well, I'm not Scottish. But even the way you said Scotland, right? Like even that strong O sound in the word, it kind of hints that you, you could have been from there at one point. I guess. All right. One, question two, what famous person uh alive or otherwise would you most like to go for dinner with and why 
You know, I think I'm going to chicken out of this a bit because I, you know, I do believe in the sort of adage that you shouldn't meet your heroes. And okay. so I, when I was working in Glasgow, we had um, the opportunity to have um, James Watson come for a visit and give a talk. So James Watson won the Nobel Prize for helping to discover the structure of DNA. So did you tell him that you, did you tell him that you dropped it in biochemistry? <laughs> no. So, <you> know, <laughs> Crick and Watson, right? So Watson comes, yeah. everybody was excited about it. You know, we had a really big lecture hall. They had to like get seats out in an overflow area. They had to set up TVs to broadcast his talk in this overflow area. He came and, you know, he's a, a, basically a terrible person. Oh, you know? is he? Okay. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah, he, he is. I mean, if you look it up on the internet, you can see how many examples of why he's a terrible person. He came and gave this talk. And, you know, I don't think I'm saying anything out of turn or anything that you can't find on the internet. He's racist. He's sexist. You know, he's a terrible person. So that's the kind of thing I have in the back of my mind. You know, if you were going to meet someone you wanted to meet, there's a very good chance you'd be disappointed. Maybe not to that extent. <laughs> Actually, that's, that's a really good answer. I never thought about that. Okay, so uh, what is your favorite food? I'm not going to be unique about this. I love pizza. I make pizza at home. I, you know, we have a barbecue in our little backyard area. And oh. pizza on the barbecue is fantastic. And that's what I'm making. Do you, do you make your own dough? And how do you keep it even on the top so that it heats from the top as well as the bottom? I make the dough and then... For my birthday last year, my wife bought me a pizza stone. So it's a oh. ceramic circular stone that goes in the barbecue. You heat it up to, you know, like 300 degrees Celsius, like super hot. It makes the, the pizza cook in like 10 minutes and it's great. And so you also said that you were, go you had, uh, you, your family spent a lot of time going to the Midwest, Chicago, I think you mentioned. So do, are you a deep dish pizza guy or are you the thin crust pizza guy or are you somewhere in between? At home, it's thinnish. I, I do remember going to Chicago when I was a kid to the deep dish places in Chicago, and they are really good. It's, a, it's almost like a different food, but they're, they're great too. Yeah, I would say it doesn't taste at all like, well, it tastes like a pizza, but it isn't, it isn't, it's a lot heavier than a pizza. <laughs> um, okay, yeah. so what is your favorite beverage? Maybe, maybe it goes with pizza or maybe it doesn't. What's your favorite beverage? Iron Brew. <laughs> Not a, a lot of people won't know what iron brew is but it's kind of like the cream soda orange drink you buy at mcdonald's, or get at McDonald's. it's uh it's a special mixture from from scotland yeah that was actually for you brian oh thank you I, the, the iron brew i'll write that down i, don't know I never you. i have to admit I, I never actually never actually drank iron brew in all the years i lived in scotland seriously did you drink have you ever had it ever since you no. came back oh no. wow okay no, I was going to say, my real favorite is probably a morning coffee. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> sometimes, when I'm, sometimes when I'm going to bed and I'm going to sleep, I, I'm anticipating waking up in the morning so I can make coffee and drink it. Wow, look at that. Does that help you go to sleep? <laughs> or is that a stimulant too? <laughs> Good question. All right. All right, so what is your favorite color? Blue and orange. Blue and orange? Are, are you... No, I, I just have to ask, are you colorblind? It's from okay, growing, up, so, growing up in Edmonton. Those are the, ah, the Oilers. Oilers colors. They're also complementary. That's why I was wondering if you were, if you were seeing them as the same. Um, no. Okay, so complete this sentence. If I was not a professor at Ryerson, I would like to be. This is the question I think stumps me because 
I can't think of anything else I'd be any good at doing. <laughs> what about entrepreneur running your own business? Would you, would you consider that? Cause I know you no. said earlier in the group. No, I'd be terrible entrepreneur. All right. So something in the top 10 of your bucket list. We had plans to go to Portugal in the end of April and we were really looking forward to it, you know, and a number of times when we lived in the UK, people were told us uh, Lisbon and Porto, they're, you know, they're beautiful cities. The Portuguese coast on the Atlantic is great. You know, it gets massive waves. Um, surfing is really big there. And we were really looking forward to that and couldn't go. So I'd say that's in my top 10 of my bucket list. And so did you get your money back? Because <laughs> a lot of people were having trouble with, with getting their flights reimbursed. No, it's one of those things where we got a credit. Okay, so you will go, I guess. You're well, committed that's, to it. That's the plan. Okay, I hope I hope you get there soon. Who is or was your favorite role model? I think I touched on this. So my high school biology teacher, um, Mr. Williamson, he was my um, he was the one who made me decide that biology was really a very interesting science that I wanted to to go into. Very cool. And what would you say is your greatest achievement so far? My greatest achievement is a scientific discovery that I made when I first set up my first lab. And it's a bit esoteric to explain. Um, but um, when cells die by the process of apoptosis or programmed cell death, they undergo these very characteristic changes in shape. So they shrink very rapidly. And as they shrink very rapidly from the surface of the membrane, you get these protrusions that push out. And it's akin to as if you had a water balloon and you tried to collapse a water balloon between your two hands and, and the water would sort of push between your fingers uh, as you were pushing. It's a similar sort of thing that cells collapse so rapidly that these protrusions stick out and then actually get pulled back in and eventually the cell completely dies. And so these morphological changes that uh, occur were discovered initially in the 19th century. It was called cell ballooning at that time. And as I said, when I first started from my first lab, we discovered the sort of molecular basis for those changes in cell shape and, and published that. And that was you know, my most cited paper. And it's something I'm, I'm actually quite proud of to, to make that kind of fundamental biological discovery. Excellent. What would you say your greatest failure has been? My greatest failure goes back to my years as an undergraduate. And, um, you know, I said that I switched from biochemistry into genetics. And this was motivated by my not being that interested in chemistry, but it was also motivated by just doing badly in courses. And so, you know, that's what I look back in my, probably my greatest failure that I, that I experienced. The, the fact that you left because of the failure in the courses or the failure in the courses were the, fa were the greatest failure? Altogether. I mean, just sort of like not performing, you know, I was disappointed myself. Yeah. I think, I think in general too, sometimes when we give up on things just because they get hard, sometimes mm -hmm. we also, right, we see that as a failure. What, what are you, what are you most grateful for? I'm, I'm most grateful is, is for my family. Um, you know, that we're together and we're all happy and healthy and that would be it. Every, 
all all parents are saying that exact same thing. The family <laughs> is, is, a, is so is so important, especially uh, now. What, what concerns you the most? What keeps you up at night? Well, I mean, I think what keeps me up at night is something that we'll probably get into a bit more, but, you know, what's going on now with COVID and not necessarily fear of my own self getting infected by any means, but really the impact it's having on society in general and particularly how it's impacting young people, like the students that we, that we teach and, and what it will do to them both immediately and also in the long run. I think that's really something that's um, worrying. Yeah, I think that uncertainty is certainly not the norm for what we're used to. What uh, spot in the world do you most like traveling to? So someplace you've been. We often, when we lived in the UK, one place we used to go to many summers was in the west of England to Cornwall at the very tip of the southern western tip of England. Um, you know, it's, it's really quite spectacular. There's, there's cliffs and sandy beaches and castles. And we used to really enjoy going there a lot. So that's what I'd say. And they have a, an accent that sounds a bit like a pirate <laughs> when they talk, which is, I don't know if that's for historical reasons or just my imagination, but. No, it is. That's, that's, why, that's why pirates sounded like that is because that's the Cornish accent. And so many sailors came from that part of England. And so many sailors would basically become pirates that um, that's basically the, the accent of the pirate is the Cornish accent. <laughs> that's funny. What is your uh, most productive time of day? I may be able to guess this based on your previous answer. Um, when I get to work, you know, I basically buckle down and get working. So it's not, it doesn't really go in phases. I'd say from nine to six, you know, I'm just motoring along, getting stuff done. No, oh, good for you. I usually find that the morning is, is where I can be the most creative in terms of writing. And then the rest of the day is where, I'm, as you say, those other obligations that you don't like doing, I much prefer them towards the end of my day uh, when I know there's a refreshing adult beverage not so far away in time. <laughs> what, is, uh, what is your favorite hobby? Uh, my favorite hobby, which I'm hoping will start up again soon, is watching the Oilers. <laughs> And maybe with a 2014 playoff, that they, they might they might actually win this year. Actually, you've had lots of success in your lifetime, so I, I'm well, a big fan. That, that's the thing. From when I grew up, you know, they were they were dominant. So yeah, that's awesome. And um, okay, so what piece of advice would you give your second year self? Pre-COVID advice. Um, I think you know, if you do have major challenges, like I had with the courses I was taking the second year, not being particularly motivated, the advice I have is just don't give up, you know, just um, try to motivate yourself and work through it. And, and things may seem a bit dark, but they, they almost always get better. Yeah, that is very true. Good advice. All right, so let's talk about COVID. So what have, what have been your biggest challenges uh, so far, you personally or, or you and your productivity? Well, I think the biggest challenge is, is, you know, it's true for everyone is the lockdown and, and trying to get things done while not having access to all the facilities that we need. Um, for me, because I basically spend all my time in my office at work typing things, writing, uh, it hasn't meant that I can't do anything, but it's, it's difficult to be as productive uh, as I would be in my office. But what is more frustrating is, is really the impact 
or more difficult the impact has had on trainees who haven't been able to make progress, who really have limited time to get things done. Students have a limited time, postdocs have limited time. And so, you know, the impact of the whole shutdown is, is not just impacted me, but impacted the whole lab. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I've seen the exact same things in my group. And one of the challenges that I have is too, is that they, used to know what they were doing right because mm. they were they were in a lab environment. now they're kind of spinning their wheels and so for me personally i noticed that i do would do a lot more micromanaging now than i ever had to just so that they are encouraged that they're i'm checking in with them regularly making sure that they're you know working on an introduction to a thesis or some sort of component i and i found it it's it's a lot of a lot more reading for me and a lot less writing but yeah. But yeah, no, I see that same thing. So what are your, some of your, like, you're right. We're pretty uh, fortunate and privileged to have a job where we could do this from home minus the, the human interaction. So what strategies are you using to help maybe move the, move the chains for you and your team? Well, try and keep, you know, keep going, right? Not, not just sort of stop and give up, but keep, keep making forward progress. Um, being encouraging, um, trying to get people motivated to work the, what they're working on. For the students who are in their final year of their thesis, it's less difficult to motivate them because they do know they have a bit of a, a clicking, a ticking clock towards their deadline. Um, for people who aren't necessarily feeling that deadline pressure, uh, one of the things that I know this this is the case because I, I was speaking to and a production manager for one of the big publishers. And they found that in many areas of biology and cell biology in particular, the number of submissions they're getting has really dropped precipitously. So they're looking at having not enough papers to fill their journals over the next few months. So they're keen to get review papers sent to them because they need to fill their pages. So a number of people in my lab that we've discussed this, that rather than doing nothing, they could write a review in an area that's related to what they work on. And that would be something that would be tangible from this time. Yeah, that's a really good idea. Interestingly, one of the things that she told me was that although cell biology in particular has really dropped off a cliff, paleontology papers submission have gone way up. And why is that? She didn't really know. I mean, she was thinking that paleontologists may, you know, they've they do their field work and then they've got data that they go back and they look at and maybe they're not that motivated to write up papers now that they're sitting at home. They're huh. writing up their papers. I don't, she didn't really have an explanation, but that was their observation. Huh. Interesting. Yeah, no, I, and writing a review for is something that, that any student who can write and, and, and read can do, right? And that's something even your, your undergraduate HQP can contribute to. Uh, mm -hmm. It's great for a master's thesis, your introduction. So it's not like it's a make work project and it, it really does help them grab a bigger scope of the literature, which I think in this modern world, when there's so much of it, it's really hard to digest it all. So, so that's yes. a fantastic idea. So what has been uh, your silver lining in this pandemic? Well, I'd say it's made me think about things like how viruses infect cells more than I really ever thought about it before and think about the similarity or the sort of common mechanisms between how viruses enter cells and the process that are related to how cells regulate their shape and think about you know, new kinds of projects where we could build upon the sort of methods and expertise we ha 
have into new areas like um, looking at these aspects of virology. So it's, it's, you know, opened my eyes up to that field of research more. So I would say that that's the probably biggest silver lining. And, and as a chemist, I did the exact same thing over the last uh, 10 days. Sarah Sabatinos and I have been talking about different projects. And that's actually, I, when I, I never thought about what a virus was. I just, I left mm. it to the, to the realm of biology as if I could make no contribution. And then I realized that you just have to break up protein-protein interactions in order to break up viruses, right? Like it's, it's not, they're more, they're small, like they're on the nanometer scale. So it's, it's almost just like supramolecular chemistry as opposed to um, biology. Like they're not as complex as I ever thought they were. So I find myself doing the exact same thing in, in, in any way that, you know, you can help the cause or, and I also, what keeps me up at night is that I don't think this is a one-off. So I feel like in, in my lifetime, in our students' lifetime, this, is, this kind of disruptions will become, well, maybe it won't be a virus next time, maybe it'll be climate issues, but I find that this might be more of the norm. So to think it through, uh, now's a good time <laughs> to really start solving bigger problems. Yeah, and I think this is useful because it's making a lot of people think about these areas differently than they used to and move out of their comfort zone. And it, you know, you are right that this isn't going to be the last time it happens. We know it, it with even within our lifetimes, you know, it wasn't that long ago that there was the big SARS problem, which hit Toronto very hard. Um, every year, there are new flus that come along that have a greater threat than the normal flu. You know, remember swine flu, for example, bird flu. Yeah. So, and this is, oh, sorry, go ahead. Is, well, COVID is particularly, um, you know, has particular impact in the susceptible populations that it's, it's very devastating. You know, SARS was different, that it was, it was less discriminating to the age of people who were affected. Um, the plus side, it would seem to be less infectious. So, I mean, the possibility is that we will have in the future, you know, additional variants of these kinds of viruses that will come along and be greater or lesser threats, but hopefully by the amount of effort that's being thrown into it and the way that people are thinking about these problems differently, you know, as we go along, these things will be dealt with more efficiently, more effectively. And I, and I hope so too, but I wonder, you know, we, while we learned a lot about public health from SARS, you know, the, the research funding still dried up for SARS, right? Like it, people, like it lost that front page threat level and mm. it seemed like, and so I hope that changes too, because you don't want to see, you know, if this summer we get through the summer and there's not a, a second wave, then everyone just forgets about this. Right. And because our understanding is still what's missing. Mm. Mm -hmm. Anyway, this has been great, Michael. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk to us today. Um, really appreciate this. And uh, we obviously wish you the, the, the best health and, and anytime you have a new strategy that you'd like to share back with the pod on how to make science better or, whatever level of ryerson community better just uh please let us know and we'll, we'll get you back on yeah well thanks for the invitation brian it's actually been really really pleasurable all right well thank you again michael enjoy the rest of your day and uh, uh and that sunshine out there all right thanks then <laughs>